Julie Kramer. What you need to know about dying. This is episode 113 on Alternative Health Tools podcast. This recording was a little rough on Julie's side, but the content is excellent. And on a side note, Kim Shea, our co-host for this episode, let me know, and I quote her, please put this down as one of my favorites for the 200th episode recap. Done. Julie Kramer worked in the corporate world for 20 years before deciding that she wanted to follow a more spiritual path. And for Julie, a new direction meant living from her heart and her soul as a hospital and hospice chaplain. In her new role, she learned how to communicate in a more valuable and healing manner with the dying and their families, ultimately discovering what the dying need most from their loved ones. Join co-host Kim Shea as she learns how important it is for those near death to be thanked for their contributions before moving on. Hi, everybody. This is Kim Shea, your co-host for this episode of Alternative Health Tools, coming to you from this side of the pond here in Southern California. Today, I have an amazing person to talk to, and we've only recently met. Her name is Julie Kramer. She's currently an executive career coach, but she's a former hospice and hospital chaplain, and she's a current spiritual director, and she's really got an interesting take on everything that she's learned and how she's integrating it going forward. And I particularly want to be able to talk to her at some point about dying and what we need to know as lay people, what we need to know about dying so that we can have an understanding of it. And as we're aware, there's a lot of death going on in the world right now with the COVID-19. And so this is something that we'll probably all be able to use, at least just to have an understanding of it. So welcome, Julie Kramer. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. So tell me about your background. How'd you get into this? Where'd you come from? Well, I'm a native of San Francisco, and um, I've been on a kind of a long journey. I started in public health. I really wanted to be involved in healing, uh, but I and so I got an advanced degree in public health administration, but that is a very political field. So I left that field, and then I went into career counseling and recruiting and human resources. And then during that time, I began to explore my faith journey. And uh, I went to the seminary and I took some classes and I learned a lot about all the, the history of Christianity and I taught world religions. Then I went back to work and I uh, became a um, hospice chaplain, actually. And then after about 10 years of working in that field, I became um, a coach. And so now I'm kind of an all-around, all-purpose coach. Hmm. Okay. So um, what did what did you do as a hospice chaplain? What exactly does that role entail? Well, um, it depends on where you're working. But um, So are you asking about hospice chaplain or hospital chaplain? Because they're very different. 
Okay. Well, if you could explain that for me, because I think most people picture somebody comes into a room and maybe performs last rites or, um, you know, they just come in and ask if you want to talk and then they leave the room. So if you could make it clearer what it is that you did in, in both of those, that'd be great. Okay. Well, in hospital chaplain work, basically you are expected to visit everyone. And not just the people that request you, although some hospitals do set it up that way. But where I was trained, I would drop, I would have a floor to cover and I would go in and visit. I would drop in and say, hello. Uh, And the thing about visiting people in the hospital is you cannot have like a social conversation. You can't start with, how are you? How's the weather? (laughs) Where do you live? You know, people are very, very sick. And they will kick you out of the room if you start talking at that level. So you have to start at a deeper level. One of the things that's very good about this work is if you have depth, it allows you to swim in the depth. In other words, That's an asset in this kind of work. So when I got into it, I was thrilled because I've always been repressing my depth and pretending to stay on the surface of life. And I don't like being on the surface. I like being in the deep. So anyway, long story short, when you walk in a room, uh, I learned that you need to ask questions like, um, what ails you? What do you need and how can I serve? Wow. Now those are the those are the um, three questions of the Holy Grail, by the way. The Holy Grail, okay. Yeah. I mean that if you read the story of the Holy Grail at the end, that's what the person learns is the those are the three important questions in life that you have to focus on. Okay. That's, those are pretty profound questions. I'm curious to know how that was received by some people. I think there'd be some confusion from some people. I mean, in general, you can't, you, you probably won't be able to ask all three, but if you ask just one of them, okay. Um, you know, when people are very sick, they don't have a lot of energy and also they may not really want to talk to you, a total stranger. And they often think that you're there to give last rites and then they're scared or they might think that you're going to preach to them. And the chaplain, you're not to preach, you're not to persuade, you're not to advise, you're not to recommend, you're there to listen. So the key tool is listening. And most people, when you, when they see that you're really listening deeply, they will let you stay with them. So that's what it takes about six months to learn that. You know, you can learn it intellectually, but to actually learn it emotionally, it takes a lot of rejection. <laughs> you know, people, when they're lear- starting in this field, they get rejected a lot. Because they're starting 
at too much of a social level with mm-hmm. conversation. And you have to be deeper and you have to be listening. That's the main skill, active listening. And so if you can hear what they say and repeat what they say, and just, I used to, every day, I used to say to myself, zip it up, zip your mouth, close your mouth, just ask a good question, and then listen. And the thing about listening, and at, well, the other thing you learned is how to ask a good question, which most people ask either why questions, how questions, or yes and no questions. All of those are going in the wrong direction. You have to ask questions that start with the word what. Because what gives the person total freedom to say whatever they want to say. It doesn't force them to choose either this or that. And so I had to reorganize my whole way of communicating. And... And then it began to um, affect my social life, too. I had to train all my friends to stop asking yes and no type questions. (laughs) (laughs) That was was the hardest part. I'll bet. I'll bet. I can see where these would be. It's a valuable way of communicating on any kind of a personal relationship level. And then as a coach... That'd be very valuable too, because it's not about you talking; it's about you listening. So, you sounds like you've had really excellent training for that too. Yeah, yeah. So that's a hospital. Yeah, chaplain. Okay, well, chaplain, you you're meeting new people every day, and you have to be very flexible and present to the re- reality of what's happening, and you can't be a you can't be advising people all the time. You have okay. really, it does go along with life coaching because in life coaching, they teach you to that the person has the answers in them. And you ju- your job is to just pull the answers out of them. Mm-hmm. And so it's the same with chaplaincy. You could ask, like, I learned to. Instead of saying, well, do this or do that, I'd say, well, what what do you think would be good for you right now? Or what, mm. how do you think you might want to deal with this? Um, you know, and put it back in their court because then they own it and then they, you know, keep it. But if you, you, you know, I learned a lot about communicating with people. I'll bet. If you just keep advising people all the time, well, do this, do that, do this, do that, they, it might just go right over their head and out the window because that's your thinking. It's not their thinking. They didn't really agree to it. They didn't accept it. They didn't integrate it. And so um, what I've come to realize is that as a world civilization, we have an awful lot to learn about communication. 
I would say so. Yeah, that's that's probably an understatement, a gross understatement. (laughs) So, yeah, that's really good. Um, So what does the hospice chaplain do that's different from the hospital chaplain? Okay, so the hospice chaplain, and by the way, with hospice, there's enormous amount of paperwork. I mean, I must have spent over 60% of my time filling out forms and computer work for Medicare. Really? Yeah. And that's that was really the reason I left, and it's the reason a lot of people leave. But the the heart and soul of the work is um, wonderful. You 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 basically go and visit families and you meet with the whole family of somebody who's actually in the hospice. And the job, the work there is to figure out how are they doing emotionally and how are they doing spiritually. Now, what I found is in most families, you've got a potpourri of people in different faith traditions. So you could have a Catholic, a Buddhist, an atheist, and a Baptist. And then the question for the chaplain is, how do you support all these people if they're all in different traditions? Well, that's why the chaplain has to step back and be more global or more universal. Um, So you learn to talk about the divine and you learn to ask people, what is your experience with the divine and what do you believe and what faith are you? And so I, I began to ask that right up front at the beginning. And then I would ask them what, um, well, you know, you might imagine that I would ask them what kind of service would they like for their loved one, but that was not really the focus because most people have already figured that out. That's almost a mechanical thing. But really the real challenge was to help people reconcile with each other around the deathbed of a loved one. In other words, it's normal for a brother and sister to be arguing. It's normal for a father, um, a husband and wife to be arguing over the deathbed of a child, for example. Or it's normal for the in-laws and the outlaws to be arguing in the waiting room or in the house or wherever they're arguing about everything they're arguing about um what needs to be done who should do it how it should be done and so on so i began to define my role as reconciliation and um unity you know to unify everyone so in my hospital chaplain work I learned to I well it, it's a long story but I found out that through trial and error 
I learned that if I could offer a ceremony that would bring everybody together in, in unity and also bring them from their heads to their hearts where they could actually express their love for the dying person, then that would be a good service. That would be valued by everyone. And I would feel like I was offering value. So I spent about a year trying and, you know, creating a ceremony that would help people do that. And I highly recommend uh, Graceful Passages. That is a CD. It's, I think it's two CDs with poetry and readings devoted to the end of life. And the readings are by, um, you know, like Ram Dass and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Wow. And, you know, just all the visionary Mother Teresa, Teresa of Avila. It's beautiful, and it's all put to music. And then it just, I mean, I would play this, and people would just immediately start crying. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds extremely powerful, and you've got all the, some of the wisest people on there. Huh. Okay. Anyway, I developed the ceremony around that CD package. And what I learned from Kubler-Ross was you have to, um, there's a number of questions that really are appropriate to answer at the end of life. And that is, the questions are, what has this person given you? What have you given them? What are you grateful for? What do you regret? And what can you forgive? And then also at the very end, I invite everybody in the room to say, I love you. And no, there are no dry lines. <laughs> oh, I can only imagine. I mean, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps and feeling emotional just talking to you and there's nobody dying right here right now yeah, so, but boy, yeah so powerful it's incredible one time i was in the hospital and they asked me to go to the emergency room because there was a 90 97 year old woman in the er and the there was a big fight about whether she should be moved to a room up on the eighth floor or if she should be sent home to die. Everybody agreed that she was dying, but they didn't know whether, you know, she would die right away and therefore it would not be appropriate to send her in a bus or if, you know, she would take a few days, in which case they should send her home. Mm -hmm. Right? There were, you know, some doctors and nurses were saying one thing, and some were saying the other thing, and the family was divided. And the thing is, she had been on death's doorstep like about five times before. 
Oh, okay. She had already been um, told that she would be dying soon. And for about a year and a half, she had been on the verge of dying. So I came to the room and I brought my grateful passages and put it on. And the family gathered around. And I just said, well, this is a very good thing to do while you're making a decision. You know, why don't we honor her life? Because the, what the appropriate way to deal with death is to honor the life of the person. And it turns out that everyone I ever met who was supposed to die like a year ago, but had not died, was waiting to be honored for their life. They were waiting for someone to acknowledge what they had done in their life. And so anyway, with this ceremony, I... Uh, quickly got into asking everybody, what did she give you? And they went around the room and were sobbing about what she gave them. And mm. then I said, well, what did you give her? And what are you grateful for? <clears throat> and so, and then I said, well, now I invite you to say, each one of you to say, I love you. Thank you. And I'm grateful. So then I left the room because this was turning into a, quite a big project. And um, gradually the doctor came, one doctor came in, and then a nurse came in, and then another doctor came in. And they were going in, but they weren't coming back out. I was like, so after about a half hour, I was sitting outside waiting, giving them their privacy. I thought, gee, I better find out what the heck is going on. <laughs> I don't know if this went sideways or what. And so I went back in and I found out she had died. Oh, my. She had died. And the, the doctors who had known her for like 70 years, they had been treating her. And the nurses, they were personally um, impacted by her loss, yeah, and they were listening to this music and they were crying. Oh my gosh! Wow, and they were sharing stories about how wonderful she was, and I, I almost started crying when I got in there, so I went back out again. But that was really amazing. Um, you know, it's true that the doctors and the nurses need more grief work and grief support and more space for grieving because they mm. so many people dying and so many people wounded. And then they have to just pull themselves together and go right on. And so when an environment is created, a safe place for them to grieve, they will take it. And so that was what was happening. And I didn't want to, you know, interrupt that because I learned over time that grief is fantastic. Grief is so healing. It brings 
people together. I mean, people who, on in their ego mind, they can't agree and they're fighting and they're arguing. But when they get into their hearts, they can reconcile. And so grieving is very, very healthy and very good. And we need to do more of it. And if, you know, don't get me going, but if we would grieve as a culture, we would be much healthier. That's beautiful. It's so powerful. And you, you created just, I mean, and I, you know, this isn't like you did it one time, you did this many times, but you created this space for everybody to come in. And like you said, you acknowledge and recognize that the people who care for the dying people also need this for themselves too, as part of healing. And I can imagine that I've been with a few people who've passed away and I feel it's a very sacred thing to be a part of, but for someone who's doing it all the time, it could really drain you. And so are you suggesting that by being able to have the space to grieve that that helps you to not be so drained is is that I, I a connection put it exactly that way okay um although that sounds logical i don't think that's the way it actually exactly is okay okay what i found i mean it depends on what kind of person you are i mean I'm realizing many, 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 many people are not interested in death. They want to stay on the surface of life. And they really want to stay on that surface. They don't want to go down. And then there are some others who want to go down into the depths and commune with the soul and with earth and with the dark and the light and the, you know, all the heavy stuff. And so it depends on what kind of person you are. Now, for the people that really like to stay on the surface, I don't think this is good work for them, frankly. Mm. But for the people who are like to be, who would rather, if they had to choose whether to hang out up there or down here, Mm-hmm. They would choose to be down here. Like, you know, Elizabeth Kubler Ross is a good example. Or Gandhi, you know, these people, they have so much depth. I'm telling you. Anyway, when you kind of are oriented toward the deep, then it's the deep is nurturing. It doesn't matter if it's the dark deep or the light deep. Or the, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's just that being in the deep is rejuvenating. So, in a way, I guess the deep includes grief. You could say that that does rejuvenate you. Hmm. I found it incredibly um, energizing. That's that's very interesting. So that's a for you, this would be a good space for you, a good role for you. And I had spoken with a friend of mine, uh, her name's Leah Pronovost, and she's a shaman. And she has said that in shamanistic cultures that 
people who are helping people to pass over, and I assume by extension helping other people to come to terms with that too, are among the most sacred people on the earth. It is such an important role. It's such a valuable gift that you're giving to somebody to help them come to terms with what's happening and to do so, you know, just to do so gracefully and and be able to move forward. It's such an important thing. So I have tremendous respect for what you're doing, tremendous admiration for what you did. It's you, you did something so healing for so many people. You're welcome. It's very, it's very much deserved praise and admiration. It's, It's such a, such a wonderful thing that you did. How did you maintain your own emotional health? You said you found it rejuvenating and energizing, but did it take anything from you extra that you had to do to protect yourself? Um, well, it did alter my um, real world life quite a bit. And I did start to move away from old friends who were on the surface. And they wouldn't. They didn't really want to go down. <laughs> okay. So it. I lost a lot of friends, really by choice. I mean, they were people that no longer really. I didn't feel we were that connected anymore. I didn't feel I could share this world with them. Okay. This worldview, and so. I spent quite a number of years, probably, well, 10 years without much of a social life. But that was okay because this deep work was so rewarding and there was such great connection there in the work that that was fulfilling enough for me. But... um it, it's still a problem, actually. I am still seeking my tribe, you know. <laughs> it's, it's a constant problem. Once you, you know, I, I guess I learned in this life to stay on the surface. And as long as you stay on the surface, you can have lots of friends and so on and so forth. But once you make a decision to kind of go down into the deep, it's a whole different world view and a whole different value system. And um, you've got to find new friends. I, I mean, I think that's what happened to me anyway. Don't you think that for a lot of people in who are pursuing a different spiritual path that's different from their friends or everybody they've known their whole life, that that can be an issue where all of a sudden where you had been connected before is now a challenge because you're operating at a different speed, I guess we could say, or just a different level as you're talking about. It can be a challenge. It's good. Yeah, I found that my... Uh, voice patterns slowed way down. As I began to shift, I used to be, I mean, I have three master's degrees and I used to be a person who lived in my head only. Mm. But now I live mainly in my intuition and heart and soul. And now I speak much slower. 
And so that, yeah, I think that happens to people um, that are changing from one faith to another or one path to another. Um, it can happen not just when you're changing faith, but vocations or marriages or, you know, lifestyles. I mean, <clears throat> there are any number of changes that people might go through that would cause them to speak in a different way, in a different pattern. And also, the, the big thing is values can change. Um, and I think my values change quite a bit because I had been working for 20 years in the corporate world where things were fast and mental. And then to go into chaplain, the world of hospice chaplain, you, I had to slow down and listen and not be so mental, but more heart-based. So yeah, I mean, in fact, I've heard many stories of people that have changed faiths from one to another. And they often in hospice, they wanted to, they wanted support. They were seeking help with that transition. And one of the things that I, I like to do is help people connect with the divine or their higher self. And so, um, and that sometimes help them decide what path would be the right path for them and what routines or practices. I mean, some people like prayer, some like meditation, some like physical activity like Tai Chi. Mm -hmm. Some people like to be just silent. So, um, but I think the main thing is to understand the value of faith and spirit in what's happening. And so the role of the chaplain is really to help people rely on their spirituality and their faith during this big transition that's happening. And to, I mean, the, I think my greatest contribution really was to help remind people hey, there is a God, there is a divine energy up there. Let's connect with that because if your loved one's dying, you're going to need some help. You know? And so just by modeling the prayers or modeling the conversation with the divine, that was a help to people because most of us are, you know, estranged from God, and we need to um, be reminded how to get back to God again. And so, I I think the other thing that a chaplain can do is to help people um, understand how faith adds quality to their life. It adds. It can add joy, love, depth, and energy to their life. And so that, I think that's my calling 
is really to help people see how the divine or the higher self can help you with your lower self and with your daily life. I, I, I'm good at helping people with that. And that's profound. What a gift that is, too. Just for everyday situations to be able to call that in and have that for your own strength, for your own peace of mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Um, I'm really, I'm so amazed by everything you're saying. Um, what are you doing right now? Because you're not doing hospice chaplaincy right now or, or uh, hospital chaplaincy right now. What are you working on? Well, I'm building a new program that is going to be around forgiveness. Um, I've got a beautiful um, video on it, which I'd love to give out to anyone who's interested. Um, We can share that. Yeah, it would be great. I'd love that. It's I myself had to forgive my family and actually myself. (laughs) Um, And so I've been on a long journey to forgive myself and others. And I've tried a lot of different things, but recently I came across a prayer that I found to be very effective. And it's a 40-day prayer which is part of the video. It's at the end of the video you can get this prayer. But my new website I will have this program. And um, so the new website is kramercoaching.com. Okay. Um, and we'll have the link here for you listeners so you can pull that up. Yeah. It'll be in the show notes. Okay. So that's... I'm, I've got the video done, and now I'm planning on offering group coaching. It's going to be group spiritual direction, hmm. really devoted to forgiveness. So important. And forgiveness of self is really important for healing and overall health. Yeah. I mean, right. It's really related to your health. <laughs> I was in the hospital. I was sick as could be. I had lymphoma. And um, I realized when I got out that I had become bitter. And I had, that's what got me going on this forgiveness path. And so I asked my doctor for help with this. And she said, Oh, the Edgar Casey people have this great. Forgiveness prayer. So that's how I got over to Edgar. <laughs> okay. And I took that prayer and I did it for 40 days for my mother and 40 days for my father. And I feel really good about both of them now. Wow. That's inspiring. That was healing. I'm telling you. I knew that. I mean, the thing is. People don't realize it, but if you heal your spirit, you will, the body will go, come along. Mm. And so 
they, everybody thinks, oh, you just have to heal the body. Well, no, no, no. In spiritual direction, you learn that when you make a change in your spirit, it will just shift your body, too, because we're holographic. And one, a change in one will affect the other. And that's what is not well known. But I, I know that. And anyway, it didn't help. It made a tremendous difference. So now I decided, hey, we're in a terrible time of conflict. We have got to forgive each other and ourselves. So that's what I'm doing. I'm offering that now. Well, that will be very interesting. And I think a lot of people would be interested in that. That's just something that, like you said, it's a it's a rough time right now. And I know that's going on for a little while longer here. So it would be nice to uh, get in touch with that aspect of our lives to bring healing to ourselves and to our body and to any any further that that could reach, our neighbors, our world, our family, whatever it would be. That's a great service. Well, what can you tell us? Because I mentioned at the beginning of this that we've got a problem with people dying from this mass disease, this pandemic of uh, COVID-19. And so a lot of people are experiencing death, either loss of loved ones or facing it themselves. And maybe they recover, they come back from it and they're, they're better, but they go through this terrible time of fear and worry and maybe have to confront death in a way they haven't done before. What can you tell us as somebody who has helped so many people and their loved ones come to terms with this? What do we need to know? Well, if you're the one that's dying, I think what you need to focus on is what you have given the world and what you have given to others. And really take some time to acknowledge the gift of your life and you know often when we're in this dark negative place we can't see that but the challenge is to search that out and find it because everyone is a gift everyone has offered something to others and I think to acknowledge that within yourself is can be healing, can give you the energy. You know, reconciliation gives tremendous energy. And to reconcile with yourself is huge. Um, and to invite your loved ones to acknowledge what they got from you. That would be a good request to make. And if you're one of the others, you know, the people that is living, but your loved one is dying, I think you should spend time telling this loved one what they gave you, what you honor in them, what you would, what you admire about them, what their you know, out, you might just even outline their life, go through their history and acknowledge what they've done at each five-year period, you know, kind of a review, a life review, really. If a life review 
is the most energizing thing to do. Because suddenly you realize all that you've given. People get so narrow tunnel vision, they forget what they've given and received. And to do a life review would be my recommendation. So given that you're saying that a life review is so important and what happens oftentimes right now is that people may go to the hospital and their family cannot go with them right now. It sounds like this is something uh, very unfortunate that people have to be possibly deprived of, that they can't have that because their loved ones can't be there right now. I'm wondering if maybe if you would be able to send this, I know that the staff in the hospitals are often overburdened, but if there would be some way to be able to get this information that it could be read to the person in the hospital, if that would bring some healing to the person who's dying and to the families, just to know that they've said it, even if it was written down or a tape recording or whatever, but just some way to be able to provide that information to unburden yourself of that might be very healing for people. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to um, share this with people. Mm. Um, I, I think just getting that Grateful Passages music would be tremendously uh, pivotal for people. Mm. That is a tremendous contribution because it's got a booklet which you read through. Okay. It does... I mean, the people that read through the booklet were, it helps you, it's a guide for grieving. Although I have a book called Grief to Gratitude, it's a workbook for grieving that is available. And, um, but I think Grateful Passages is better. But my book also has music. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're very humble. Okay. Well, well, we'll include the link on there for that too. But um, I'm wondering if maybe, you know, um, Zoom is kind of the center of our universe right now. That's the way we all stay in touch. So maybe that would be something that people could do, even if they can't all be at the bedside of somebody who's preparing to pass, if they can do this virtually and they could listen to this together and share this together just to help people. Yes. To, to work through this in this bizarre time we're living in right now. Yes. Yes. That would be very good. They could do it together. And just to pray with someone is huge. Mm. People minimize that, but I think it's, it's a very healing thing because you're, when you pray, you're coming from your heart, your spirit and your soul. Mm. When we're talking, we're just, Mental. It's all mental. And the mental isn't really all that ex helpful at the at a time like this. People don't feel met, they don't feel seen, they don't feel heard. But if you can hang out in your heart, which prayer does kind of invite you to, uh, that would be good. And my workbook has actually prayers in it. Um, that you could use. Well, I want to share this with everybody in the show notes so they can look that up. And, and there might be a lot of people right now who really need this. 
that really make a difference for people as they're going through the grief process. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Any story or thoughts or anything like that? Because I think I've asked my questions and I just want you to know, Julie, this has really touched me very much. This whole conversation, it's been very inspiring. And I'm just thankful that you are here with me today and that you are here in the world and that you've made such a difference and that you're continuing to do so. Thank you. you. We need people like you. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. It's really great. Um, Thank you very much for having this show. And thank you for having me on it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, this this show has been running for a long time, since 2014. And I'm very, very thankful to be a part of it. I'm a new addition to the show. And I'm really excited to be a part of it and to be able to share people like you with the world. It's just such a nice thing, such a nice service to be able, for me to be able to do on my end. So thank you, Julie. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to share all of your contact information. I'll follow up with you as necessary to make sure we get everything in there that you want people to have, as well as the links to some of the things that you spoke about so they can find that there. And I think this is going to be a wonderful tool for people. So uh, I, I'd like to th- or thank you all for being here and listening today to Julie Kramer, who's an executive career coach, a former hospice and hospital chaplain and a current spiritual director. And um, you can catch this podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. And please come by to alternativehealthtools.com. Leave us an audio message if you want more information or if you just want to let us know what you thought about with the interview today with Julie. We'd love to hear from you. And Julie Kramer, thank you so much 